Section 4 of The Outline of Science, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outline of Science, Volume 2, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 10. The Body Machine and Its Work, Part 2. Section 5. The Vital Fluid. Let us return to the nutritive material which has been taken up into the system. The tiny organs on the bowel wall which absorb it pass most of it directly into the blood vessels, which they contain. It becomes part and parcel of the blood, and will now, after passing through the liver, be pumped round the body for the various organs to select from it the nourishment they need. The blood is not the simple matter which it seemed to our ancestors. Indeed, it has proved of late years to be full of subtle interest. If you prick your finger with a needle and put a small drop of blood under the microscope, you see myriads of little discs, many of them in rows like columns of pennies, in a watery or yellowish fluid. The fluid, the serum or plasma, is the liquid food of the body and the medium for conveying away the soluble waste matter. The red discs, or corpuscles, are the bodies that convey oxygen from the lungs to the tissues. There are about five million of them in every cubic millimeter of the blood of a healthy man. A woman's allowance is half a million less, and it is these which give the blood its red color. We have about 25,000 trillions of them in all. Thus the microscope discovered a new and unexpected complexity in the blood, and further research has shown that it is the iron-containing pigment in these red corpuscles which is chiefly concerned in the carriage of oxygen. There is very little iron in the blood, and it is absurd to think that we increase its quantity, once it is normal, by eating things with iron in them, as people say. But what iron there is may be called a precious metal in the human body, and the red corpuscles have it in a form that still more or less baffles the chemist. There are believed to be something like 2,000 atoms to the molecule in the red pigment hemoglobin of the corpuscle. These discs, or corpuscles, are formed mostly in the red marrow of the bones, and, after serving for a few weeks, they are broken up in the liver or the spleen. Warfare in the body. But this is only the beginning of the interest of the blood. In the drop which we observe under the microscope, there are, as we said, myriads of red corpuscles in a yellowish fluid. It was found out some years ago that the serum is quite congenial to its own corpuscles, but that if we mix into it a little of the blood of some animal of a different kind, the serum of the first animal destroys the red cells of the second animal. Thousands of experiments were made, and it was found that the degree of action of one kind of blood upon another depended on the nearness or remoteness of relationship of the two animals. If they were nearly related, there was no destructive action, Naturally, the opportunity was soon sought to apply this new test of man's place in nature, and it was found that his blood mingled amiably 
with that of the anthropoid apes. There is a third element in our drop of blood under the microscope, and this is the most interesting of all. Here and there in it, though hundreds of times less numerous than the red discs, there are what are called white corpuscles, microscopic colorless roundish specks. When we study these specks closely, we find that they behave just like the very primitive microscopic animal known as the amoeba. They push out parts of their substance and glide along. If there are bacteria in the blood, one of these corpuscles may be seen making its way to one of the intruders, and slowly folding its substance around it. After the microbe is engulfed, digestion soon follows. In other words, there is in the blood, besides the army of oxygen carriers, a great army of defenders against bacteria. Let a tissue be injured somewhere, and the injurious bacteria find a footing, and begin to multiply at an appalling rate. We are threatened with disease, if not death. The bacteria may destroy the tissue, or pour poison into the blood, but the white knights now gather from all parts to defend the body. They are brought, of course, by the flow of the blood, but they seem to have some sort of chemical sense for bacteria, and they crowd in the particular tissue which is threatened. A great struggle ensues, and the patient's temperature rises to battle heat. If the white corpuscles succeed in devouring the microbes before they multiply to a dangerous extent, we are saved. But bacteria multiply at a terrible speed, and sometimes they beat the corpuscles, and we pass into a perhaps dangerous illness. Biologists had hardly ceased to wonder at this new romance of the blood when others were discovered. Bacteria produce a poison, or toxin, with which they taint the blood. But it was found that the blood produces an antitoxin, a chemical for neutralizing the toxin, and after years of experiment, the antitoxin was prepared in the laboratory and injected into the blood. It also became possible to help the white corpuscles in the fray, or spur them on to it, so to speak, by preparing a sort of sauce, an opsonin, the man of science calls it, from dead bacteria and injecting it into the blood. The opsonin makes the living bacteria more attractive or palatable to the corpuscles, and our brave defenders go to work more vigorously. Sir Arthur Keith, in The Engines of the Human Body, refers to, quote, the immense and movable armies of microscopic corpuscles which can be mobilized for police or sanitary duties. They swarm in the bloodstream as it circulates round the body. It is extremely probable that one variety of them, if not more, are really errand boys on their way to deliver messages or parcels, and that the gland masses, which are built up in and around lymph channels, serve both as nurseries for the upbringing of such messengers, and also as offices from which they are dispatched on their errands. End quote. Section 6. The Heart. It is clear that the many-sided value of the blood depends upon its regular coursing through the whole body, and we have now to see how this is accomplished. Until three centuries ago, 
there was not a man in any civilization who knew anything about this circulation of the blood. The most learned physicians had the weirdest ideas about the function of the heart and the flow of the blood. Nowadays, the essential facts are familiar. The heart, which one feels beating about the lower part of the breastbone, though drawn a little to the left, is the central pumping station. From it goes a great tube, or artery, which branches out, much as the trunk of a tree divides into branches, and finally into twigs, until its finest ramifications have carried the blood into the remotest tissues of the body, even into the teeth and bones. There the little twigs turn back, as it were, and become veins, and the veins from all parts join each other and at last bring the blood back to the heart. In a sense, it is as if the fresh water circulation and the sewage circulation of a great city were managed from the same pumping station. One set of pipes would convey water to every tap. Another set would bring back the foul water to the pump. The difference is that in the animal body, the two sets of pipes join on to each other and form a continuous system. But obviously, fresh and foul blood must not mix, and this has been secured by the evolution of a heart with the two halves completely separated from each other. We can trace the evolution of the heart by studying it in various types of lower vertebrates. In most reptiles, the two halves are still imperfectly separated, and mixed blood, pure and impure, fresh and foul, goes to the greater part of the body. In the mammals and birds, the separation is complete. The heart is a thick muscular pouch, with walls about half an inch at their thickest part in man, which has to drive the blood to the tissues on the one hand, and to the lungs for purification on the other. That is why it has separate halves. Each half, moreover, has a little chamber for receiving the blood, an oracle, and a larger chamber for pumping it, a ventricle. And valves are cunningly contrived at each opening so that the blood can flow only in one direction when the pump works. So remarkable is the mechanism of the heart that we do not yet know what regulates its beat. There seems to be some mechanism in the heart itself for regulating it. Seventy-two times in every minute, in a healthy and resting man, the chambers draw their walls together and pump out the blood. There are tens of thousands of muscular fibers built so wonderfully into the walls that the chambers can close in from every side, like a man closing his fist, and give the blood a start that will carry it all round the body and back to the starting point. It is, of course, a mistake to say that the heart never rests. It rests and recovers between each beat. But its function is remarkable. As we said, it beats seventy-two to the minute when a man is resting. But let there be some sudden call for action, and almost before you get from your chair, the great pump beats faster, as if it knew that the distant muscles and brain had now work to do and must have more blood. When we are sitting still, it throws five pints of blood, a little more than a third of all the blood in the body, into the arteries every minute. 
during a quick walk, the heart pumps seventeen pints a minute, and the man who runs upstairs is asking his heart to pump thirty-seven pints a minute. During even less violent exercise than this, all the blood in the body, about fourteen pints, passes twice through the left ventricle of the heart and all around the body in a single minute. From the left ventricle, the chief pump, the blood passes into a thick, broad tube called the aorta. The elastic walls of this tube expand as the blood rushes in, and then slowly close again, driving the blood onward. In this way, and by the general resistance of the tubes, the arteries, the jerky discharge from the heart is converted into a steady flow after a time. The arteries branch out in every direction, and as they approach the tissues they have to feed, they break into myriads of very fine tubelets, often not more than one three thousandth of an inch in thickness. The wall of the blood vessel has now to be so thin that the nourishing matter in the blood can flow through it to the tissues, and the waste matter from the tissues can get back into the blood. Even this is a far more complicated matter than is generally supposed. The cells in each tissue of the body must somehow select their own food and oxygen, and even the union of oxygen with carbon in the working muscle does not take place as we find it in ordinary combustion. A WONDERFUL APPARATUS At the point where the artery subdivides into the finest tubelets, the capillaries, there is a wonderful apparatus, a sort of stopcock, for regulating the supply of blood. Muscular fibers are coiled around the artery, and, as the artery enlarges or contracts, the supply of blood to that particular tissue is increased or lessened. When you sit down to a meal, for instance, the stopcocks are opened full to your digestive organs and partially closed against your muscles and brain. When you stand up and move about the room, various muscles have to work, and the cocks are duly turned on to them. When your muscles need all the blood they can get, your brain and digestive organs get less. When you stand erect for some time, the regulative system has to see that blood does not accumulate in your legs at the expense of your head. But if you overdo it, if you stand long in a close crowd or a stuffy room, even this admirable system breaks down, and your brain, which is particularly sensitive about oxygen, runs short of blood. You faint. Here again, science has only made a great discovery to be confronted with a mystery. We know that there are nerves from the muscles of the arteries to the spinal cord, and that the stopcock we have spoken of is regulated by a reflex nervous message from the cord. But how these unconscious elements of the human mechanism work so perfectly together, we do not know. When we remember how densely ignorant of all these things men were only a few generations ago, we may be sure that much will be discovered by our children and grandchildren. Every year, indeed, brings new discoveries of a remarkable kind. We have already noticed that certain chemicals called hormones, of which we shall speak more fully immediately, are produced in various structures, ductless glands, of the body, and posted in the blood, as it were, for a distant organ. One of these hormones comes into play in connection with the blood. 
when a man is setting about some prolonged and strenuous exercise, nerve messages go to stimulate certain glands near the kidneys, called the adrenal or suprarenal glands. They supply one of these chemicals, adrenaline, to the blood, and it passes round the circulating system until it reaches the small arteries. It closes the cocks and shuts down the supply to organs, which are not at the time required to be active, and thus ensures a fuller supply to those organs which are called into strenuous exercise. When the blood has passed through the tissues, given up its nutriment, and received the waste carbonic acid gas and the soluble nitrogenous waste, the blood turns back towards the heart. It passes into a new set of fine tubelets, or capillaries, and these unite in the veins. The veins have thinner walls than the arteries, as there is now less pressure, but they have a remarkable series of valves along their course. The blood cannot flow back, cannot go wrong. You can actually trace one or two of the valves on the veins of your arms, if you try to force the blood back to your fingers. Little knots stand up here and there so the blood courses steadily back, and is poured into the opposite side of the heart to that from which it started. It enters the right auricle, and passes into the right ventricle, and the next beat of the heart sends it to the lungs, where it gives up its carbonic acid, and gets a fresh supply of oxygen. Section 7. How and Why We Breathe The blood has many functions. It takes fluid food to the organs, and, in its red corpuscles, it carries oxygen. It has also to bring away from the organs the waste products of their activity, the carbonic acid, carbon dioxide, which is got rid of in the lungs, and the soluble nitrogenous waste, which is got rid of by the kidneys. The work that is done in the various organs, such as the muscles, nerves, and glands, may be roughly compared to the work done in a simple steam engine. Fuel must be supplied, then oxygen, the essential element of air, must be supplied to unite chemically with the fuel and convert the energy which is locked up in it into heat and active work. The stomach supplies the fuel. The lungs, like the blacksmith's bellows, supply the draft of oxygen. If we do not forget that in the animal body the chemical action is far more subtle and indirect than in the furnace, this may be taken as a useful simple view of what goes on. Let us follow the draft of air into the lungs and the blood. We saw that, for the food to become available to the tissues, the blood vessels have to become finer and finer until at last their walls are so thin that the nutritive material can pass through them. It is the same with the air passages through which we breathe. The air enters by the nostrils. We will suppose, at least, that the reader is sensible enough to breathe always through the nostrils, and teaches children to do the same. In the nose there is a warming chamber, richly supplied with blood, and the supply automatically increases in cold weather, and there is a sort of sieve or filter the hairs in the nostrils, for screening foreign bodies from the air. Dry air is also moistened in the nostrils. There is a mucous membrane in it, which is most useful if you treat it reasonably, but if you treat it unreasonably, 
if you pack yourself with others into a moist, stuffy, unventilated railway carriage or small room, it will get gored with blood and boggy, and offer a good field for certain microbes, and you will have a cold in the head. Behind the root of the tongue, the airway crosses the foodway and enters the windpipe or trachea. At this point, there is the customary door, automatically opening and shutting, and behind the delicate folding door are the vocal cords, which we use for speech. The windpipe divides at its base into the two bronchial tubes, one for each lung, and there are ingenious arrangements for dealing with dust or microbes that have got past the sentinels in the nose. There is a coat of mucus to intercept them, as the flypaper does flies, and there are countless microscopic lashes or cilia, which bend and straighten rhythmically, beating towards the entrance, and thus gradually push out the intruder. If certain kinds of dangerous microbes settle on them, the glands pour out large quantities of mucus, and your lungs automatically blow it out at times. You have a cold and a cough. In the lungs themselves, the bronchial tubes branch out into numbers of fine tubes as the arteries do, and each tube ends in a score or more of little air chambers. There are about six million of these minute chambers, each about one-tenth of an inch long, in the two lungs, and they are formed so as to give as much surface as possible. If we could open them all out and piece them together, we should have a total surface of a hundred times larger than our skin. This is the wonderful contrivance evolved for bringing a large body of air into almost direct contact with the blood fifteen times a minute or more. In a deep breath, we can take in a whole gallon of air, and even a normal breath takes in two quarts. Nerve Messages But who attends to the working of this wonderful bellows while we are sleeping or are concerned with other matters? It is, of course, another of those automatic mechanisms which have been formed in the animal body during millions of years of trial and sifting. The lowest part of the brain, a part called the medulla oblongata, includes a nerve center which is sensitive to the carbonic acid in the blood, and stimulated by this, sends automatic messages to the muscles of the ribs and the midriff, or diaphragm. At each intake of breath, twelve pairs of muscles work harmoniously in expanding the chest, and then other muscles pull the bag together again and expel the air. But how can the air extract the carbonic acid from the blood in so short a space? All such difficulties are provided for in the body machine. You breathe out only a fifth of the air in your lungs every time. The little air chambers automatically close if by a strong effort you try to empty your lungs. The exchange of gases is going on all the time. If, on the other hand, the muscles are working hard and need more oxygen, the increased carbonic acid in the blood stimulates the medulla, and nerve messages from it rain upon the lung muscles until you pant for breath. A man or woman engaged in sedentary work gets into a way of using the lungs to only about a tenth of their capacity. You understand the pale scholar and the anemic girl in the cash box. 
they provide too little oxygen, and the blood will not provide red corpuscles which are not needed. If such people will go for a good swinging walk in air that is rich in oxygen, the blood will stream through their medulla, the nerve center at the base of the brain, and the lungs will open out. The real breathing is, of course, deep inside the body. The little air chambers have walls almost as thin as soap bubbles, and a rich supply of similarly thin blood vessels, capillaries, outside them. Through these thin walls, the red corpuscles somehow extract the oxygen from the air, and the blood also gives off the carbonic acid. Then the blood streams back to the left chamber of the heart to be pumped through the body in the way we have described. When this blood finds itself in the thin-walled capillaries amongst the organs of the body, the red corpuscles yield their oxygen, and the blood returns to the heart with a new load of carbonic acid. We have seen that this union of oxygen and food in the tissues may roughly be compared to what goes on in a steam engine. It enables the organs to work, to do the work we describe here, and it produces heat. And in connection with this heat, we employ, all our lives, wonderful mechanisms which even modern science has only partially mastered. The blood must be kept at a temperature of, in a normal human body, about 98.4 degrees Fahrenheit. When the air sinks very low in temperature, we shiver or stamp our feet or rub our hands. The shiver is an automatic warning to take exercise, to increase the combustion in the muscles. When, on the other hand, the outside temperature rises too high, we get the stopcocks of our arteries, which are tightened on a cold day, now opened wide, to let the blood's heat escape by the skin. If this does not suffice, automatic messages go from the nerve centers to the millions of sweat glands in the skin, and we sweat. To raise the temperature of the watery fluid so much, heat has had to be extracted from the blood. If the air is dry as well as warm, this mechanism is generally sufficient. But if we are in a moist heat, everybody knows how much worse it is than dry heat, the evaporation through the skin is checked, and the temperature of the blood rises until it may be too much for our brain. Even cold, moist weather is trying. Our vitality is lowered in meeting it, and the cold microbes get their chances to invade the body. A wonderful mechanism, surely. But there seem to be unintended effects at times of these ingenious devices. Take the crimson flood on a girl's cheek at some ugly word, or some word of praise, or some consciousness of guilt. The stopcocks to the capillaries in her cheeks are opened wide, but we can hardly suppose that some nervous reaction was evolved for that purpose. Sudden paleness is more intelligible. The cheek blanches in the face of danger, because the stream of blood has been directed to the brain and muscles that may have to meet the situation, and such temporarily useless organs as the cheek have the supply cut off. Section 8. The Large Machines of the Body we may seem so far only to have concerned ourselves with organs which exist for the sake of other organs. That, in point of fact, is the nature of every organ in the organism. 
and indeed it would be at least equally correct to say that bones and muscles which one naturally thinks of as forming the greater part of the body exist very largely for the purpose of digestion and respiration nutrition and reproduction are the oldest functions the original functions of the animal body the elaborate skeleton with its masses of muscles has evolved to protect and minister to these fundamental activities of the distribution of the two hundred bones and two hundred and sixty pairs of muscles which form the great bulk of the body little can be said here a catalogue of the bones would be a list of unfamiliar terms and a catalogue of the muscles would be almost an essay in greek it is in the development and minute structure of bone that modern physiology is chiefly interested as is now generally known the body begins its existence as a single cell a microscopic speck of living matter surrounded by a membrane and the development of the body is due to the repeated and rapid multiplication of this cell the fertilized ovum or egg cell until countless millions are formed it is a cell state a commonwealth of millions of living active units bound together into a harmoniously working organism as this protoplasm the jelly-like matter which composes cells is soft the beginner may wonder how it can build up such structures as teeth and bones to understand this as far as we do understand it at present we have to remember that as the cells of the body multiply from the original egg cell they also separate into different classes we get muscle cells nerve cells bone cells gland cells and so on and they differ remarkably in structure from each other one contingent of these cells consists of the bone builders and long before birth they begin to construct the supporting framework of the body it is of course not bone at first frames of cartilage preceded bony frames in the course of racial evolution and a cartilage frame goes before bone in the development of the individual body when the time comes the bone builders extract the lime salts which have got into the blood with a digested food and they use these in building up the bones sir arthur keith tells us that there are two million of these bone builder cells at work in the thigh of a newborn baby and that the number rises later to a hundred and fifty millions they make the bones solid then they change the interior into the light but strong texture with which everybody is familiar how is it that we feel no creaking no jarring or friction of the two hundred and thirty joints by which our bones play upon one another here is another ingenious contrivance a layer of cartilage remains over the end of each bone it is dense very elastic and always well lubricated by one of the many remarkable automatic lubricating systems of the body the cartilage cells themselves in this case are converted into lubricating fluid when they die the muscular system which moves the bones is the red flesh with which we are familiar in the butcher's shop everybody who has carved a joint and knows the importance of cutting against the grain is aware that one of these large muscles of the ribs or limbs of a cow consists of muscular fibers packed closely in bundles 
there are six hundred thousand fibers in a single muscle of man's arm the biceps each fiber is composed of many fibrils the seed of that power of contractility which we very little understand the body machine is still full of problems and mysteries for us three hundred years ago the courageous anatomists of the later middle ages began to make out the structure of the organs later came a generation which dissected the organs into tissues later still as the microscope improved the tissues were dissected into cells and the whole life of the organism was resolved into the cooperative life of millions of these units but we now know that the secrets of the life of the cell lie partly in the molecules which compose the cells and these are beyond the range of the most powerful microscope we must wait and be grateful for what we know science never rests on the very day on which i am writing this page the press announces the discovery of a new microscope which takes us at a bound deeper into the mysteries of living nature meantime science has shown us that the muscular system is an automatic living mechanism of the most wonderful kind to every muscle the arteries bear their streams of food and oxygen the muscle cells select their diet and the veins take away the waste products on every muscle there are also the fine endings of some nerve from generally the spinal cord and at the proper moment a discharge along the nerve causes the whole mass of the cells or fibers in a muscle to contract simultaneously and lift the bone to which the muscle is attached the nerve impulse itself is slight it is merely like a match set to the great energy stored up like powder in the muscle but when we remember the number of muscles needed for a single harmonious action we bring fifty-four into play at each step in walking and there are about three hundred muscles concerned when we walk the delicacy of their adjustment the precise degree of action needed in each we cannot but marvel at the ceaseless regularity and correctness of this unconscious play of muscle and nerve and nerve centre we can say only that it is broadly and beautifully illuminated by the story of evolution a slow advance during millions of years during which every individual with a defect is sifted out and every improvement means longer survival in the struggle for life end of section four